Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this hour that you've appointed for us as a people to come and hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit on your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the testimony of the Scriptures, of which he said they testify of him. And we thank you for granting us knowledge of the truth. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that is free. And thank you, Lord, for not remembering our sins, for they are too many. We thank you, Lord, be with us as we hear the message. Be with all those who are listening. We bless them with ears to hear. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, whilst I gather my opening thoughts, let's be opening the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And today I'm going to be reading from the KJV. I think I'm going to lose my salvation. <laughs> King James Version. First Samuel 17, and we're going to be working our way from verse 1 to 27. Now the Philistines, or the Philistines, gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And so, and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in Ari against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span and he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass, and he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders, and the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head, one bearing a shield, went before him, and he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in Ari? Ye might not a Philistine and ye servants to Saul. Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and servers. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man went among men, for an old man in the days of Saul. Verse 18. And the three elder sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were 
Eliab the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three elders followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp of thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the ship with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in Ari, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were so afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that is come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the man that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So it shall be done to the man that killeth him. It shall be done to the man according to verse 25. And that's the word of the Lord. And for a title, very easily, it's verse 25. But if you want a summarized version of that, what shall be done? For the men, what shall be done for the men? And number two title, the king's daughter. The king's daughter. Number three, <laughs> what did Christ accomplish at his death? What was done for the men at his death? Thank you everyone who is just joining us. We have, I believe, a very wonderful gospel message. And I pray that God will bless you. I need you to stick with me all the way to the end and hear every line that I'm going to be speaking because it leads into the next. It connects the pieces together. This is all gospel telling. This is a lot of gospel, to be honest, to squeeze in two hours. <laughs> we do not apologize for preaching Christ from the Old Testament or anywhere for that matter. The Lord Jesus himself gave us the license 
and the hermeneutics, that is the way of reading the Bible, of how to read the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. He said in the volume of the book, it is written about me. That sounds like a very arrogant statement to make. You just show up from nowhere and you're not even 30 years old and you say, oh, guess what? This whole book that you've been having for the past two, three, four thousand years, it's been talking about me. <laughs> In the volume of the book, it is written about me to do your will, oh God. And to the Jews, he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. It's about Christ. And so if a man does not have wisdom to find Christ in these places where he is hidden, he should go to God, go to Christ, go to the Holy Spirit and ask to be shown the hidden treasures of his wisdom and God gives them freely and without measure. There is no book that you can go and read to find Jesus. God has to reveal Christ to you. Many people read the Bible and they still cannot find Jesus in the Bible and what he means. So God has to give you the ability to read and also to hear. Not everybody is given the gift to find him in the scriptures the way that maybe someone like me and other people can do. But if he doesn't give you that, he gives you the ability to see it and agree with it and believe it. Okay? But it is God's design to hide things from people so that they can only be discovered by his revelation and illumination of them. God has already revealed Christ. What we are doing when we go to the scriptures is illumination. We are going to the scriptures that a lot of people think they know and God comes and he illumines them with the Holy Spirit to show us what he actually meant. And what he meant was Christ. He meant the preaching of the gospel by those stories. That's illumination of the scriptures. So in the Old Testament scriptures, we find hidden the treasures of Christ. And if something is hidden especially in the gospel context. It means God alone, the revealer of secrets, must come and reveal it, as he has done for us in this message. But some, not wanting to humble themselves before God, because they have something that they cannot just read and understand, they do not want to humble themselves before God and ask him to teach them. They discredit gospel telling from the Old Testament and say, oh, he is just making it up. When we clearly know that the Old Testament 
is a gospel book, just as the New Testament. So a gospel preacher should be able to see gospel testimonies from both the old and the new because they have the same writer. They were inspired by the one and same Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's what the Holy Spirit testifies of. He shows us Christ in all places. But I will, by God's grace, show you that we are not just making things up because both testaments show you that they are 100% in agreement with each other. You're going to see the amazing agreement between even this chapter of First Samuel and the New Testament. So there's a lot of detail in the 16 chapters before this one. There's a lot of detail, a lot of gospel that we have to get back to when we're done with Exodus. So we have books, three books that are hanging now. We have Romans, it's in the air. Exodus, we are trying to finish the Exodus. And we are now in the book of First Samuel. But today, in the interest of time, we won't go to the 16 pages, 16 chapters of First Samuel because I believe in just the verses that we have read, we have enough content to do more than three Berean messages. But we'll be greedy <laughs> and try to squeeze as much as we can in this one message today, and that is say we go to verse one of First Samuel seventeen, and I'm gonna work the gospel as we proceed. First Samuel seventeen, verse one. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephes Damin. Philistines, the Philistines, Israel's arch enemies, gathered their armies to do battle. And they were gathered in this place that belonged to Judah. Right there we already have our gospel nugget. We have the enemies of God's people and they happen to gather in the place of Judah to do battle. Why gather in Judah? Because that is where the battles that settle things between God's people and their enemies are fought. They are fought in the land of Judah. When you have enemies, check where the battle is happening. It has to happen in the land of Judah. Let me explain further. To those who have not understood that, that is saying the matter of your salvation from your enemies as represented by the Philistines are settled by one who is from the tribe of Judah, namely Christ Jesus. Victory over our enemies does not come from Levi, it does not come from the law, it does not come from Simeon. It comes from Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, so in the book of Acts, Acts 4, verse 12, Peter says, and there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other place for battle. The battle that brings salvation other than that which happened in the territory of Judah. This is a fight for Judah. It is not a fight for Levi. It's not a fight of the law. So Christ Jesus, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. That's clear teaching. Verse 2, First Samuel 17. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. King Saul and the men of Israel were gathered also by the valley of Elah in Judah. So I guess Miss Ella is a Judahite. <laughs> Saul is leading his army. Saul has much gospel testimony that he represented. And so do not be so quick to condemn him as a reprobate, as many people do. Because then that becomes an impediment to extracting gospel testimony from the person of Saul and the script that God has written around him and about him, which is a lot. But suffice it to say, he is the king of Israel and is leading his army to try and bring salvation from the Philistines who have gathered around them to destroy them. Verse 3, and the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. So this was the terrain on which the battle was to be fought and to be decided. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel on a mountain on the other side and a valley divided them. So both camps are on opposite ends, standing on two mountains, and the valley is what separated God's people from their enemies. Verse 4. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So the camera has moved quickly from the mountaintops and has focused and singled out this one character, this one man, because he represents everything that is important to know about the Philistines, their intentions and also their strength. He is the representation of the fullness of the strength of the Philistines. And from the camp of the Philistines came out a very fearsome Man, a champion, a warrior, a giant, Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, and that translates to about ten feet. 
And that means a giant and would have easily been playing basketball for the LA Lakers. <laughs> you just be dunking just like that. <laughs> LA Lakers in the finals every year. <laughs> Goliath is their man. So that high description and everything that follows about Goliath is supposed to make you feel like a dwarf and very afraid. That's the point. Verse 5. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And that is to say he was dressed for war. He had all the protective gear, a helmet of brass upon his head, and his body was clothed with a coat of mail like impenetrable wire mesh, scales like a crocodile, but made of wire, <laughs> so that spears could not go through. And the weight of his coat, this wire meshed coat was 5,000 shekels of brass, that's 125 pounds. 125 pounds. Just imagine adding 125 pounds to yourself. You struggle carrying an extra 10 pounds. 125 pounds, and then you have to fight. And the point being, a lot of metal. And very heavy. But it's nothing to go alive. Verse 6. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. The greaves are leg armor or wear leg armor, especially important in the warfare of the day because they protected the shin, the tibia bone of the shin from any kind of injury that would render the soldiers useless. The shin is very vulnerable to injury, especially in that context. So Goliath has these on and also had a similar contraption on his shoulders. A target, they call it. Verse 7. Verse seven. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 15 pounds. Iron tip. And one bearing a shield went before him. So that was his armor. It was heavy. In military terms, that is saying he was armed to the teeth. He had on the best military equipment technology of that day. He was a superpower, a superman also in many ways. And this description is very important because we ought to know in the matter of salvation, how armed and dangerous our enemies were apart from Christ. That's God's point. We have to have an appreciation of how armed sin, death, and condemnation were for us to appreciate God's grace in salvation. For to have a low view of Goliath and what he represented will result in a low view of how he was overcome and the person who overcame him. And so God is behind all this 
gospel drama, and this is a real story, and this is God's script. It's God who scripted everything. It is God who raised Goliath and is using him this way to preach something greater than the person of Goliath. Goliath's stature must be magnified because he represented more than just some oversized Philistine. He represented the power that was against God's people to condemn them because of their sin. There are a million useless messages that have been preached around the person of Goliath with New Year's resolutions to fight against your Goliaths, whatever they are. No, that's foolishness. <laughs> In the gospel matter, we are looking at sin and its effects, which are death and condemnation. Sin, death, and condemnation even the law, are oversized enemies of a sinner. And that should send chills down our spines if we understood that we have nothing, absolutely nothing that we can give or do to come out of their power. That is why Jesus kept saying, what shall a man give in exchange? What shall you give? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It is not saying that you have something that you can actually do. There's nothing that you can do to overcome Goliath by yourself. You cannot earn eternal life by anything that you do. And once that is understood, we don't downplay God's grace. And who has not looked at sin in their experience of it and not come to the realization that it is a power of great stature than Goliath? Sin is armed to the teeth and it is impenetrable to any means that we may bring or offer to try and overcome it. There's nothing that you can do to undo your sin. It doesn't matter what New Year's resolution you commit yourself to and say, okay, I'm going to be overcoming this sin this year. I'm going to get better. I'm going to... That's not how you're going to overcome Goliath. And God is going to come and say the same thing in a different way and say, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified before him. Yeah? Resolutions. Again, resolutions against sin will not overcome sin. It doesn't matter if you combine the resolutions with fasting and whatever else you come up with. It's not going to work. And so with sin comes death. Or with sin came death. And who can overcome death? Look around you. 
as you drive around the graves. They bear witness of people who succumbed to death because of sin. And death is fearsome. There's nowhere where death happens and doesn't leave people a little afraid and also in tears. It is covered in a coat of mail. It leaves us helpless. That's the one thing that completely leaves us helpless. It carries with it a spearhead that weighs more than the 600 shekels of brass that Goliath had to dash sinners to pieces because the wages of sin is death. And in the fearsome stature of Goliath was carried the condemnation. To see Goliath was to be condemned. It was to be good as dead. Condemnation of death. Because no one in their right mind would conceive to go in the ring and fight Goliath and expect to come out alive. So in Goliath and his stature, God was capturing for us the testimony of sin, law, death, and condemnation. Those go together. And these are not your friends. These are great things that many minimize and say, oh yeah, the law is the believer's rule of life. <laughs> these are impossible things to fight and win against. The power of sin is the law. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The law which demands always a perfect obedience. If you miss one point of the law, you are guilty of the whole thing. You are condemned to death. So who then can dare go against Goliath? And with what weapons of war? In other words, what are you going to do to cause your own salvation because Goliath is already in the camp. Goliath is here and is staring at you with his weapons of war. And he is demanding that you fight him. He wants to fight. And he is not going home without fighting someone. So the question then again is, who shall deliver you from the body of this death? If we listen to Goliath's sermon, we may have an answer to all those questions, an answer to our dilemma. Goliath, a mighty preacher. Hear this from the mouth of Goliath. <laughs> Verse 8 of Thessamo. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, why are ye come out to set your battle in Ari? Am I not I a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul. Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. <laughs> I love Goliath. 
Goliath did not lie about all that he said. He was a true preacher. A fine preacher. And he's going to preach a better sermon than you ever hear from much of the pulpits that are dotted around the world. Unfortunately, even some so-called reformed and sovereign grace, so-called pulpits. It doesn't matter if he knew what he was talking about. What matters is that God was prophesying through him. God doesn't have to agree with the person for them to tell the truth. <laughs> you remember Balaam? Balaam was a false prophet, and yet God spoke through Balaam to bless God's people, Israel. So you have to have a good understanding of God's sovereignty to see these things. Don't ascribe these words to Goliath's mind. No, Goliath is just a sinner. He cannot come up with something like that. But Goliath says, as a preacher, <laughs> why have you all of Israel come out to set your battle array? Do you have any understanding at all of the matter of fighting, the matter at hand, the matter of salvation? You have come out with your little weapons of war against me, the Philistine. I'm no ordinary dude. What are you thinking? You are servants of Saul. See that. You are servants of Saul. To say what? What is he saying? He's saying you are under the law. Saul was king of Israel as testimony of their bondage to the law because God said, well, you want this king. I'm going to give you a king, but he's going to ill-treat you. He's going to make a mess of you. He's going to abuse you. And this is the one who is taking them to war. <laughs> His ill-treatment and abuse of them was testimony of the law against sinners. Who we'll developed that some more for you when we get back to First Samuel, the whole book. To work on the testimony of Saul and what he represented. You are servants of Saul. Because after Saul, even the old covenant, Saul represents also the testimony of the old covenant, the law. Another king who rules Israel shall arise as an immediate aftermath of the fight with the Philistines. David, I'm just going to say it, because some people may not even know about it. David is going to come after Saul. David representing the New Testament, the New Covenant representing Christ. Goliath says, you servants of Saul do not get this matter. You who claim to be law keepers, you do not understand the matter of salvation. Those under the law think they must each go, each one of them go and fight 
for their own salvation from the Philistines. For their own righteousness. So everyone comes with their little spear. They think there's righteousness in their law keeping, in their own personal obedience by which they will overcome all that is against them and impress God by it. But Goliath has a solution. He prescribes a solution to the matter, the proper way of fighting, and says, choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. Choose you a man for you. Find a man, a suitable man for you to represent you, represent you in a fight against me. I do not want to waste time fighting you all. What is that saying? It is saying representation and union. Find a man who represents you, who also by default is in union with you to come and fight me. And if you have found the man, let him come down to me. The man, when found, must come down to where Goliath is because Goliath cannot go where this man is found. And this man cannot be found among men. So Goliath says he must come down. Yes, in the immediate vicinity of the story, the man must come down from the men of Israel who are on the mountainside. But God is preaching here. The real man that God is speaking of must come down to earth. And this is speaking and anticipating the incarnation of the Lord Jesus who must come down from heaven as the man that he may fight sin, fulfill the law and cause our salvation. Just as he said in Exodus chapter 1 or Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush, I have come down. I've had the cry of my people, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. He has to come down. This man is in the business of coming down to fight. Because when he comes down, this is where Goliath is found. Goliath cannot go to heaven to fight, so Christ has to come down. Because on earth is where God's people are imprisoned in sin, death and condemnation. They were imprisoned in sin here on earth, not in heaven. So we must understand union and representation or substitution with Christ. Otherwise, we will not understand what God is saying in the gospel. When you minimize union and representation, you minimize the whole work of Christ. The appointed man who comes to fight already comes in union with these people and is coming representing them. That's what Goliath said. He fights for you all. And Goliath is saying, 
the matter of salvation is determined only in the representative person, not in individual people in their own battles and their own fight for righteousness. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that's what Goliath is prophesying, that the matter of salvation is only settled in the one person, never in a crowd of people, the one person. And Goliath continued with his beautiful sermon, verse 9 of First Samuel 17, and said, If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall he be our servants and servers. Goliath says, The appointed man must be able to fight. That's one of the conditions. He must be able to fight. Do not waste my time with a weak man. (laughs) Sin has no time fighting sinners. We have already been overcome by sinners. By sin, sorry. It's looking for a real man who can fight. I need one who is able to fight with me and to kill me. Sin must be killed. It must be put away for there to be salvation. There could not be a stalemate. But is there a man who could be found a type of Christ in this situation to meet Goliath's conditions. Because Goliath has stated his conditions. He wants a man to represent you all who can fight and kill me. I like that kind of man. First Samuel 16. Let's go to First Samuel 17, 16. Verse 17 to 19. And Saul said unto his servants, it sounds like he's saying the same thing as Goliath, provide me now a man that can play well (laughs) and bring him to me. Then answered one of his servants and said, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning in playing and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the ship. Sounds like this son of Jesse missed the qualifications that Goliath requires for there to be a real fight. A man that is cunning in playing the instrument. The Lord Jesus. A man that is valiant. A valiant man. A mighty valiant man. The Lord Jesus. A man of war. (laughs) The Lord Jesus. 
prudent in matters, full of wisdom. The Lord Jesus, calmly pass and come to me, you who are weary and ever laden, and I'll give you rest. For I am gentle. I'm a gentle man of war. And the Lord is with him. That is Emmanuel. That is Christ Jesus. And this man was with his father also. <laughs> he was with his father and tending the sheep. And that is Christ in the person of David. That is the proper understanding. And Jesus is coming in the person of David. Jesus, the son of David. That is why David has all those qualifications. It is not that he had good genes. No. It is God who is preaching Christ through David. It is not by accident. Let's go back to verse 9 again of First Samuel 17. Goliath says, if he be able to fight with me, well, it sounds like the one that we just read about may be up for the task. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and servants. Goliath says, if the man is able to fight and kill me, then that settles the whole matter for all of Israel in that one act of fight. That one act of death. Israel shall all at the one time be justified in the victory of, of the one man of a Goliath. I have to repeat this because it's too important. Because people are not hearing it. Goliath is saying, all of Israel shall be justified at one time as a corporate body in the victory of the one man over Goliath. And all the Philistines will become servants to Israel as soon as this happens. So there's going to be a change of things right away. As soon as this fight is over, Madison Square Garden. <laughs> but if Goliath prevails over the man and kills him, then all Israel would serve the Philistines. So there's one to one here aspect of salvation that Goliath is preaching. And this is what Paul taught in Romans 5. In verse 18, we shall go to Romans 5 soon. But this is what Paul says in Romans 5, 18 in regards to this matter. Paul says, therefore, as through one man's offense, that is Adam, judgment came to all men because Adam represented all humanity. In the one man, God transacted everything in the one person. You don't have to do anything to be condemned because you were already condemned in the one representative person. Even so, the contrast. 
through one man's righteous act. One man's righteous act. One. The free gift came to all men, all the elect, in the new man, in the second man, resulting in justification of life. So the one act is what justified. It is not what will justify. No, the one act justifies. So all of Christ's people were justified in his death because it is his death, his one act of obedience that alone removed your servitude to the Philistines as Goliath correctly stated. So if you look at that with the eyes of Romans 5, Goliath is representing everything that is in Adam. That if Christ does not win, then everything that is in Adam remains on you. You remain a servant of sin, a servant of unrighteousness. But in Christ, we have been justified at the death of the one man by his one act, and we have become servants of righteousness, servants of Christ. So to say that the redeemed are still condemned, even after Christ, the one man, has already fought Goliath and won, is not correct teaching. The correct understanding is that we, that we who belong to Christ were justified when he died because he represented us all as the one man in that death. So this matter between Israel and the Philistines shall be decided in the representative man, one representing Israel and Goliath representing the Philistines. Also, Goliath said, it shall be settled how? It shall be settled only by the death of the one. Someone has to die in this fight. One must die. There's no draw. There's no surrendering in this. To surrender is not an outcome that Goliath agrees with. One must die. Only the death of the representative man is acceptable as the condition of salvation. Only the death of the representative man is the only acceptable condition. And Caiaphas and the elders of Israel were also of the same opinion about the very matter. Let's go to John 11, beginning at verse 48. John 11, beginning at verse 48. John records for us, this is in the wake of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. This is what the elders of Israel came together and decided because they were scared, feeling threatened of the rising popularity of the Lord Jesus. They said, if we let him thus alone, that is Christ, all men will believe on him. <laughs> if you let this guy keep preaching the gospel, all people are going to come to him and we have a problem with that. 
It seems like he's going to grow his church. And we don't like that. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation and we'll be on unemployment. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. You are foolish. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. It is expedient that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. The one man of Goliath was also the one man of Caiaphas. <laughs> he must die for the people that they may not perish for Goliath, he must stand and die for Israel. And for Caiaphas, the one man must stand and die for Israel. And the children of God scattered abroad. Verse 51 and 52, still in John 11. And this spake he not of himself. You understand that? But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And that is exactly what Goliath is doing. He is prophesying. He is not speaking of all these things of himself. He was prophesying. God was speaking through Goliath. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So that death of the one man gathers all of God's people together because in that one act they were all justified. So it is very important then that we pay attention to the death of the representative man and what that death accomplished because Goliath talked about it and so did Caiaphas. Let us hear what Goliath said the death of the one man would do. Verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. See, Goliath is not a gospel compromiser. He won't accept anything for salvation that is not the one representative person. Give me a man that we may fight together, he said. Get in the ring with me. And settle this matter once for all. This fight settles all things once for all time. He says, I defy the armies of Israel. This day, give me a man. I love God. <laughs> I love God. Just excellent preacher. There's no denying that. But much of religion do not like a preacher like Goliath who brings only the one condition of salvation in the one man as already decided matter, as already finished. They want to put conditions to the one man for you to be accepted, for you to be holy, for you to be justified. They want to add things to the death of the one man and say Jesus did not actually save anyone when he died. Until you come to faith. That's nowhere in the testimony of Goliath. That's not true gospel testimony. Faith does not settle your matter with Goliath. It's the death of the one man. That settles things. Here, 
Saul and Israel's response to Goliath's message. People are going to have a response when you tell them the truth of the one man. <laughs> Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Here Saul and all of Israel got weak in the knees. Why? Because they had no solution. The law had no solution for salvation. That's the point. The law had no solution. And all of Israel are thinking and saying, war is me. If what Goliath is saying is true, then war is me. Wretched man that I am. I am so ruined. I am so undone. Yeah? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who shall deliver me from Goliath this very day? That's Romans 7. Paul teaching of his own situation. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The sinner who comes to the conviction of salvation. We have to come to the point when they also get dismayed and greatly afraid once they have understood the question and the problem at hand. Israel understood it and Saul understood what Goliath was saying and they were dismayed. When people have understood what God requires of salvation, they get dismayed by their lack of righteousness and God's condemnation of it to hell. But when that happens to anyone, when you get dismayed at the problem, almost always the solution also comes in tow. Because God never brings you to the point of dismay without the solution behind it. The solution is always going to come. As happened with the woman with the issue of blood, she came to the end of herself. She got dismayed by the, all, by the prescriptions that she was getting from all those false gospel physicians. But when she came to the end of herself, she heard about Jesus, the one man, <laughs> and she got her healing. So, with that comes the solution. Verse 12 of First Samuel 17. Now David, that's a transition from the dismay. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. As soon as Israel comes to the end of itself, dismayed and greatly afraid, God introduced the solution. But the solution begins with a resume, with a CV, a great CV. It begins with David, the son of Jesse, the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, of Judah. The war, remember, is being fought in the land of Judah. And so the solution to Goliath has to come from the tribe of Judah. If there's not much talk about Judah and the son of Jesse, the son of David, 
you are hearing a false gospel. You are hearing the sophistry of man, not the wisdom of God. So Jesse has or had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, he went among men for an old man. And that to say, Jesse was a picture of God the Father again as Abraham was in old age, because Jesse has the son who's going to have to fight and win against Goliath. So he is old in age as the ancient of days as a picture of God the Father, who has the son who goes to war, who has to come down to the valley and war with Goliath. And that tells you that David was a type of Christ. Verse 18. And the three other sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. So Jesse has three sons already who were in the company of Saul. And they're going to multiply some words against David later in the next message. Verse 14. And David was the youngest, and the three elders followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David was the youngest of Jesse's sons. Why? For a testimony that will follow soon in the next message also. It's a necessary testimony that will develop. But he went to Saul and came back to feed his father's sheep. So he is very much a committed shepherd of the sheep. (laughs) And that builds for us the testimony of the qualifications of the one man that Goliath is demanding for a fight. Verse 16. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself for the days. The Philistine was unrelenting in his threats and demands. Morning and evening, he was tormenting Israel but demanding the one thing. He was repeating the same thing over and over, like a real preacher. Give me a man that I might fight with him. Give me a man. Just give me a man. In other words, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Night and day, give me the one testimony I'm going to keep tormenting you until I see the one man And a sinner will not find rest from the torments of their unrighteousness until they know they're found or they've been found by the one man. It's about the one man. Verse 17. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this piged corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp of thy brethren. Jesse comes and gives instruction to his son and says, Take this parched corn and ten loaves and run to the camp of thy brethren, just as Jacob sent Joseph to his brethren who were out heading the gods. Brings them, bring 
something to them and also come back with a report. Jesse says exactly the same thing. Go check your brethren and come back and give me a report. Go to thy brethren. That is Christ Jesus receiving instruction from the Father to go check the welfare of his brethren on earth and bring them the bread of his salvation, the bread from heaven himself. See that Jesse said, take these ten loaves and bring to thy brethren. Yeah? Run to the camp of thy brethren. So Christ came to redeem those who are called thy brethren. He brought enough bread for those who are called thy brethren. That is, his brethren alone, because it is for they alone he was given instruction to bring bread to, to bring salvation to. That is particular redemption. Christ only died for those that were his brethren. They were his brethren before he came to fight for them. He fought for them because they were already his brethren. Believing the gospel does not make you the brethren of Christ. It confirms that you are already brethren by reason of election. Faith does not cause you to be brethren. It evidences. Verse 18. And carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of the thousand and look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. The father says, check on them to see if they're all right, to see if they have not been condemned by their sin. <laughs> Essentially, that's the instruction. Go and check to see if they are okay. And in the event that they are famished because of hunger, famished because of sin, famished because of disease, redeem them. And bring a pledge, a token, from them that they are fine. That's what the pledge means. It's a token, a pledge from the brethren that they are fine so that the father will know. The father wants to hear a report from Jesus on the welfare of his brethren on this journey that he made to the world. And don't tell me that he's going to go back to the Father and say, I saw my brethren, but I left them in a condemned state. But his mission was to justify them. The Lord Jesus has to give a report to the Father. And that report comes by way of the resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection in many ways, is our testimony to God. 
that the brethren is fine. That I left them justified. They are alright. I saved every one of them. As he prayed in John 17. Let's go John 17 verse 5 to 10. Verse 4. Sorry. John 17 verse 4. The Lord in his high priestly prayer prayed this and said I have glorified thee on the earth. I have glorified the Father on the earth. How did you do that? I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He finished the work. Every preacher must say what work is it that Jesus finished. They can't just say, oh, he finished. No. We have to say what it is that he finished. Because he said, I finished. I gave thy brethren, my brethren, the ten cheeses and the bread that he gave me. <laughs> and now, O oh Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee. He came out from thee as he came down to thy brethren. And they have believed that thou didst Send me, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. You John 3, 16 people, have you ever heard this Jesus in John 17? Because so loved the whole world. No, he says, I pray for those that were given me by the Father. I pray not for the world. For, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Christ is equating himself with the Father and saying whatever the Father possesses is also his. Whatever he possesses, the Father also possesses. And now I'm no more in the world but these are in the world, and I come to thee with a report. And come back to me with a report, and tell me how your brethren fare. How are they? Holy Father, keep through thy, thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Yeah? <laughs> so Jesus is giving a report in his high priestly prayer to the Father and saying, I have kept all the brethren, those that were yours that you gave to me. I have given them the bread from heaven and they are all fine. But since I am now coming back to you, Father, you keep them also in that name, in your name, 
even in my name, the name that you gave me. Keep them in the name of Christ. Let's go to 19, verse 19 of 1 Samuel 17. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the ship with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. Pay attention to what has just been said. David did not just up and leave the ship by themselves. He left them in the company of a keeper. And that means the Holy Spirit. The elect are always watched by someone right from the beginning. They are never left home alone. God keeps them even before they've come to the knowledge of their salvation. God has always kept us right from the beginning. He doesn't need for us to, he doesn't need for us to know that he was keeping us. But now we know <laughs> that we were not left to ourselves. That's why he survived a lot of the things that a lot of people died from. And died without knowing Christ. You probably did the same things. Somehow you survived. It was because of the keeper. A person who keeps the ship. Who is unnamed or unidentified. Is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Because he does not draw attention to himself. But to the chief shepherd, if you recall when Jacob sent Joseph to go check on the brethren, as Joseph was out in the field looking for his brothers, he met some unidentified person who knew where the brothers were. And said, oh yeah, we're looking for brothers. I know where they are. And that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows you're going in and you're going out because he's God. But he shows up in the scriptures as the unidentified person who is doing some work to service or to serve as in the case of Joseph in Egypt. When he commanded for there to be a banquet for his brothers. There was also an unnamed person who made all the preparations to feed them. Go and read these things. They are there. So the Holy Spirit keeps the ship, but he does not talk about himself. The Holy Spirit does not testify of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit talks about the son of David. He talks about Jesus. And he has no self-esteem issues to elevate the name of Christ. So where you see a lot of people talking about the Holy Spirit, it means the Holy Spirit is not there. Because when the Holy Spirit is there, 
he always talks about the one person. He talks about Jesus. All right. Verse 21. First Samuel 17. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. Also, when David got to the camp of Israel at the battlefield, where his brethren were, he left his carriage. He did not leave his cargo under a tree. The cargo that he had had supplies that he had brought from the father. And he left the supplies with the supplies officer. Another picture of the Holy Spirit. He came and saluted his brethren. Verse 23 and 24. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. So Goliath kept repeating the same thing. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were so afraid. So David shows up and so did Goliath. And Israel was scared to death and so they took off running. Verse 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that is come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up and it shall be that the man who killeth him the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And this is the reason why I wrote this particular message and all that I said was just introduction. <laughs> because this is very important gospel statement that many Preachers are not getting out. They are not preaching this message. They are preaching a potential salvation, but using sovereign grace, language, and terms. So if you are not careful to listen carefully, you won't hear what they are not saying. The men of Israel have this from the king that the one man who kills Goliath. You see, Goliath has to be dead. Goliath must be killed. So they tell this to David and said, you see this man here? He has come up to defy Israel. So the problem is identified to David. This man, Goliath, is the problem. And he has come to defy our people and even our God. But this is what is going to happen to the man who negotiates a peace settlement with him. Is that what I was saying? No. There's no, no such language of a peace settlement. There's no such language of a negotiation. What shall be done to the man who shall kill him? Put to death. 
what shall be done to the man? In other words, Goliath must be killed. Goliath must be killed. That is the only acceptable outcome. Goliath must be killed. There must be an end to Goliath. There must be an end to justification. Christ cannot die and there continue to be torments from Goliath. When Christ shows up as the man, then there is a break. The cross has to be the event that separates condemnation from justification. When he shows up as the one man, then there has to be a break, immediate break, because the man has been found. But with that must be attached blessings that come to the man who accomplishes such an impossible feat. Three things have been proposed by the king, and all of Israel know this. All of God's people should know this about what happened to Christ, to the person who fought. We should know. That has to be our testimony. Three things have been proposed as what would happen or be done for this man. And as I said, of course, coming from the king. King Saul has to have authorized this which means God the Father is the one who is in the picture of Saul as he is saying this. That the man who comes and wins this, something has to be done to them or for them. Number one, they say the king will enrich him with great riches. Number two, and will give him his daughter. Number three, and make his father's house free in Israel. This is what will happen to the man who defeats Goliath. This is what would happen to the man who defeats sin, who overcomes death and condemnation. In other words, what would Christ Jesus, the man, get? In the wake of him being crucified. What did he accomplish by his death? That's what this is saying. What did he accomplish? We can't just say Jesus accomplished salvation. What does that mean? These are the specifics. This is what would happen to the man. And Jesus, as David, knew what you were supposed to get. David knew from this before he went into the fight what he was supposed to get. It was told him. So Jesus coming to earth, he knew exactly what was going to be given him. What was the expectation from Christ? The expectation of his payout. His wages. He came down to earth to fight with promises from God. Number one promise, we expand it now. Number one promise, that he will be glorified in the aftermath of his death. When Jesus, as we just read, John 17, Father, I finished the work that he gave me to do. Now glorify thou me 
with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world because I finished. I'm just about to wrap this thing up right now. Christ will be enriched with great riches from the king, from the father. And that you say again, Saul is a type of God the father. And we see God saying, he will glorify Christ before his death and glorify him by seating him on the right hand of majesty on high because he made an end to the purification of sin. He justified his people. The justification of his people is a condition for the glorification of Christ. Christ cannot be seated on the right hand of majesty if he did not justify his people when he came. God is not waiting for you to show up for you to be justified. This has nothing to do with you. It's about the man who is fighting. That's what he gets. The glorification of Christ as the man of war was tied to his defeating sin in the person of Goliath, in his delivering his people from their sin. That is why, again, one cannot say Jesus died but did not justify anyone when he died just because someone is wanting to say, oh, there are no justified people who don't know they're justified. Yes, there are. Because justification does not depend on you believing. Justification depends on the one man who stood for his brethren. We have to look to the one man. Okay? But what else would the man get? The text says he would be given the king's daughter. That is very creative. He would get the king's daughter. The king's daughter was the daughter of Saul. And in the gospel matter, the king's daughter is the church. <laughs> the church is the king's daughter. Which David got immediately afterwards in the next chapter. We won't go there because I have other things to say. But David got the king's daughter. The daughter of Saul was given to David for a bride because he fought and killed Goliath. That's what David got. When Christ died, he got the king's daughter. He got the church right away. There was nothing to wait for. Because there was no other condition to fulfill. The condition was he dies and he overcomes. So Christ, in the context of death, Christ died in the fight, but he did not remain dead. <laughs> so he resurrected. So he remained alive. What died is sin. What died is the law. What died is death. What died is condemnation. Christ is still alive. 
Christ got the king's daughter is payment for our redemption. He got the king's daughter. Not that he would get the king's daughter. If the king's daughter decides. No. The church is the king's daughter. God's daughter. Chosen. Sanctified. And justified in Christ. And I'm going to hammer this point again because I don't like much of the talk happening in the gospel circles. When I've asked some sovereign grace people to say what did Christ accomplish when he died, they say, oh, he just accomplished redemption, but he didn't justify. They're playing games with words. They're playing power politics and some, behind the scenes, they're playing to shut me out. Because they've pledged loyalty not to the truth of God, but to their camps and theological positions. And I'm not into this. I'm here to tell you what Christ actually accomplished. It's a very simple matter. Israel will tell you if you ask them, and I'm going to tell you, he got the king's daughter. <laughs> if anyone has a problem with that, then they don't have a problem with me. The problem is with God, was the one who said it. He got the king's daughter, and that means he justified the king's daughter from all her sins. The king's daughter has to be purified. She has to be cleansed, right? And that's what he came to do, to purify her. Christ already purified us. He perfected us forever by his offering of himself. One time offering of himself, he purified us. He justified us. He made us holy. Okay? Because the king's daughter could not be joined to Christ apart from his death because it is the blood that cleanses. It is the blood that remits, that cancels the sin of the king's daughter. I must say this statement again. See what the text does not say. It does not say he would get the king's daughter later if the king's daughter comes in faith. You do not become the king's daughter at faith. You were already the king's daughter even before Christ came. Faith only confirms that you are the king's daughter who was given to Christ. And Christ already redeemed you. Okay? It's a very simple gospel to be honest. Christ got the king's daughter because he fought and won. That's the condition. On his side of things. Because he fought. And by that reason alone, he went in the ring with sin. 
This is how much Christ loved the king's daughter. He gave his life. He was willing to suffer the reproach of the Philistines, the reproach of sin, the reproach of death. The one who is life had to succumb to death for the sake of the redemption of the king's daughter. That's how much he loved the church. Yeah? So the resurrection of Christ was testimony that he had gotten the king's daughter. Yes, the resurrection testifies that Christ made full payment, he made full satisfaction, but this is the other way of understanding it, that he successfully made payment for the king's daughter and he now owns her. The book of Acts would say he purchased the church with his own blood. So he got the king's daughter because he's the one man that Goliath talked about getting the king's daughter only condition the victory of Christ. Not on our own recognition. Now let me rephrase that. I have to rephrase that statement because it's important. Getting the king's daughter was conditioned only on the victory of Christ over sin and death. Not on our recognition and knowledge of his victory. Our knowledge of the victory of Christ does not cause us to be called or to become the king's daughter. It confirms that we are the king's daughter. Our knowledge does not cause. It confirms. What else will be given to such a man? That will be our last point. And make his father's house free in Israel. The house of this man, his father's house, his whole house would be free. <laughs> free from what? Free from condemnation. Because he paid. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those who are in the Father's house, they are free. We are those who are of the Father's house. Those who have been made free by his all-conquering sacrifice of himself. And to this the Lord said of himself, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. <laughs> because those who are in the Father's house are going to be free. If the Son sets you free, but when did the Son set you free? When did he justify you? When he died. Yeah? So the Son, for what he accomplished, he made the house of his Father free. You can't, I have to say this again. You have to say what Jesus accomplished. He set free his father's house. Not yesterday when we had a message from Romans 7. No. In Galatians 5 verse 1, 
Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Do not be entangled again by a yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. We have been set free. We have been justified. People don't realize that when the Bible says set free, it is the same thing as saying justified. They're looking for the one word. I'm like, no. God can say the same thing 25 different times or even 100 different times. It's freedom. Freedom from what? From sin and condemnation. That means justification. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. The Holy Spirit says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit testifies of. The things that have been freely given us. That is Christ, that is justification, or accomplished. And that to say, from the hymn, free from the law, or happy condition. Some people don't like that. Reformed people don't like that hymn. Free from the law, what are you saying? Free from the law, or happy condition. Jesus had blood, and there's... Remission, this cancellation of sin, cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, all that testimony carried in Goliath. Christ has redeemed us once for all. He has made us free. Verse 26 and 27, and that means we've come to the end of the message. <laughs> First Samuel 17. And David spoke to the man that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine? And taketh away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So it shall be done to the man that killeth him. The people answered him according to the manner of verse 25. That's how the people are supposed to answer to the matter of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so this is what happened to the man who killed the Philistine. To the man who conquered the mighty Goliath of Gath. The man who took away the reproach from Israel, who took away the reproach of sin and condemnation, the shame of not having righteousness from you and me. The man from the tribe of Judah the son of Jesse, David. Christ is also called David in Isaiah. He is the son of David. He is the one man of Goliath, 
the one man of Caiaphas, even the Lord Jesus represented in all that. This is what was done to him. For him, he got the riches and glory <laughs> from the king. All power and authority has been given to me. Did Jesus not say that right after his resurrection? All power and authority, all the riches have been given to me. Yeah? And he got himself the king's daughter. And no one is going to snatch the king's daughter from the hands of Christ. It's not going to happen. Not for what he paid to get the king's daughter. And he also, with that, set free all those that are of his father's house. He justified them. He justified them from all their sins, from which the law of Moses could not justify them. That's the book of Acts. And that is to say this is what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's what he accomplished on Mount Calvary. This is what he understood as he was coming to earth, that he was going to get all these things as soon as he accomplished the work. And this odd Testament gospel preaching. <laughs> That's all Testament gospel preaching. God be praised for his revelation of Christ and the gospel in the hidden places. His preaching of Christ even from the pulpit of Goliath. Goliath had a pulpit right there in, on the mountain and telling the truth without a building and saying, give me one man. Choose you a man to represent you. Bring him down to me. We'll settle this matter in a fight. If I win by killing him, then you all become our servants. But if he is a valiant man of war and he fights and kills me, then we'll become your servants. But in all of that, this man, he has to be glorified. This man has to get a beautiful bride. In chapter 7, chapter 18, we're going to hear of Saul's daughter who loved David like head over heels with him. We're going to work that. That may be message number two out of this one. We'll see what other testimony God will give you. But that is, that's, that's it, God, God's people. We are done. Go back and listen to this message again. Listen carefully. These are a lot of words. Go back and listen to what I am saying and what I am not saying and make the distinctions. We are not saying the same things. Okay? All right. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this one man that you preached through the testimony of Goliath. The one man who overcame Goliath and killed him. And in the wake of that, he has been glorified with great riches. He has been given the king's daughter, the church, and he has justified all his people by that one very act. We thank you, Lord. We honor you for this message and this beauty. We pray for those who have listened and those who shall listen. May you grant more ears and opening of minds to see the truth and love this Christ who loved us so much. 
We thank you, honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.